0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, Episode 32, Hitler, the Poorly Documented Years. By early 1908, Adolf Hitler had lost his beloved mother, but was finally striking out on his own in Big Vienna. Along with his buddy August, he set up in a shared apartment, and the pair resumed much where they had left off at Linz. The difference here, though, was that August got accepted into the Vienna Conservatoire, where he would train to become a professional musician. Hitler, meanwhile, kept up the charade that he was still going to the art academy. August, understandably, thought something was up, as Hitler had way too much free time on his hands, but he was also a very non-confrontational dude. So, that situation dragged on for a long time. They would go out to opera at nights, August would work for much of the day, and Hitler would while away his time wandering the city on a budget. He never held down a job in Vienna. He never found a way to get some money coming in. Whatever he was thinking during this time, wasting away his days, I have no idea. The entire situation was unsustainable, and he had to have known it. His only friend was August, and even then, mostly because he was a weak personality who not just listened to Hitler, but was enthralled by their one-sided conversations. Hitler never pursued a romantic relationship, or even a separate friendship. And in case you're wondering, it's doesn't seem like he had a sexual interest in August, either. He was possessive, though, and he would get upset whenever August brought over pupils he was working with from the Conservatoire. And by upset, I of course mean the classic Hitler rage we're going to come and know. I'll conjecture more on Hitler's sexual hang-ups later, but for now, just know that this whole situation of mostly isolation was really weird. It also didn't last. By July 1908, August completed his semester and was going back home to Linz for the summer. He figured that he'd crash with his parents there and come back in the autumn to continue his studies while rooming with Hitler. When he got back in November, though, Hitler was gone from their apartment. No note, no nothing. We know that he had registered elsewhere in the city on November 18th, lying and claiming to be a student. His sister Paula recalled that he had vacationed with his remaining family that summer, But after that, things start to go dark. August tried to follow up with Hitler's half-sister Angela, but nobody seemed to have gotten word from him. This was right around the time that he had applied for the Art Academy for a second time, this time being soundly rejected up front. No examination this time, just no. For someone who had lived in ever-escalating fantasies in his head, this was probably a rude blow. Now, we're dealing with a guy who had lived, so far, a fairly idle lifestyle, entirely due to his parents' resources. He had had big dreams that he felt would come easy to him, and upon the moment where he actually had to prove himself and live up to those fantasies, he failed. Badly. This was probably something that undermined his whole worldview. And to top everything off, he was living in a politically and racially charged environment. Now, if that all sounds like a familiar profile to you, well, It's the kind of thing that happens all over history. Usually the damaged person lives a life of obscurity, though. But in this case, it results in the greatest of history's monsters. Not that you should be too sympathetic. He's really making his own bed right now. The next year or so is largely unknown, with no real interactions with scant recollections from people he might have interacted with. Whatever his situation, the money ran out in September 1909. That autumn would be rock bottom for Adolf Hitler. At least until April 1945, that is. He was homeless and probably sleeping rough wherever he could. The cold was closing in, and he was without whatever possessions he previously had. In December, he headed for Vienna's outskirts, specifically the neighborhood of Meidling, in the southwest part of town. The cold walk took him two and a half hours, but he reached his destination, a recently established homeless shelter. The experience would not be a pleasant one. The crowd of the destitute shuffled in, were declothed and thoroughly cleaned before set up with their communal accommodations, which was good because Hitler was a lice-ridden wreck at this point. It was here too that Hitler made the acquaintance of the most extensive source we have on him up to this point. This man was Reinhold Hönisch, aka Fritz Walter, a wandering servant and laborer with a minor police record. He took the young Hitler under his wing, probably out of pity. Keep in mind, Hitler was not just materially destitute, he was also physically at his end, too. Even if this experience had shocked him into allowing for the possibility of normal work, he simply was not fit for it. Honnish, though, saw a business opportunity in the 19-year-old urchin, specifically his modest ability to draw. hunnish's idea was to peddle postcards. Not very ambitious, I know, but he didn't have a whole lot to work with here. And hey, Hitler was decent at drawing streets and buildings so his deficiencies with people wouldn't matter all that much. Money was a sticking point, though, as Hitler didn't just sell off his art supplies before becoming homeless. He had almost literally sold the clothes off his back. Luckily for him, though, he still had some family to hit up for money at this point. He reached out by a letter to his Aunt Johanna, and she sent him a modest sum of cash, enough for a second-hand coat and some painting materials. Hitler was all of a sudden in business. He moved in February 1910 across town again. This time from the south of Vienna to the northern part across the Danube. He established himself in a men's home, which for basically pennies accorded him a cubicle room and a source of cheap food. From this space of operations, he would start working on his postcards, handing them over to Hunnish to sell off. In this manner, he lifted himself from the severest poverty to a more moderate version of it. Hitler also started becoming slightly more social in the new environment. There were recreational spaces on the premises of the the home, which he would use as a space for his drawings. Notably, too, he would use these areas to vividly go off on tirades about the socialists in the city and espouse his admiration for the likes of Schonerer and Luger. It helped that he had a half-captive audience, his fellows not really having a whole lot of other places to go. Notably, one of those fellows that he was apparently close to was a Hungarian Jew named Joseph Newman who also worked on moving Hitler's drawings for him. The men there spent most of their time indulging in get-rich-quick schemes and other dead-end enterprises. But for the young tramp, it offered a stability he had not known since his mother first fell ill. At least, at first. The insane apathy and laziness which Hitler had exhibited for most of his life would reassert itself at the first sign of the slightest prosperity. And the spring of 1910 wasn't out before Hanish started losing his patience with his young partner. Hanish, was able to find buyers easily enough, but Hitler was unable to churn out pictures in the quantities needed. Honish correctly accused Hitler of only producing enough to keep himself afloat in the squalor he had managed to obtain. Eventually, the two had a falling out, with Hitler accusing Honisch of stealing a large picture and selling it for his sole gain. Honish denied this, and the two split as business partners. The matter was brought to the police in August 1910, who imprisoned Honisch for a week over the separate charge of using the Fritz-Walter alias, as they really didn't care about the painting. From this point, the trail goes cold again, and we don't know all that much about Hitler's comings and goings. A witness in the shelter named Karl Honisch, yes, kind of confusing with Honish I know, became acquainted with Hitler in early 1913. His account tells that Hitler by this time was living much as he had in 1911 selling paintings and rambling off to his fellows. Honisch would not know Hitler long, though, as the financial outlook of the artist was starting to rebound. First, his picture business was going well enough that he was able to afford real clothes, and it is also strongly suspected that he had gotten his Aunt Johanna's inheritance money in late 1910 or early 1911, which lifted him still more into a lesser form of poverty. The big gain, though, was his dad's inheritance his share of which would come due upon turning 24 in April 1913. Upon collecting it, he decided to bid Vienna adieu. He had come to the city a dreamer, and left it a hardened vagrant. A verbose one at that. With his dad's inheritance, finally his, there wasn't really anything keeping him in Vienna, and he resolved to make the jump over to Munich. As a Pan-German, he would finally be rid of the multicultural Vienna, and would travel to a purely German metropolis. He arrived in the city at the end of May 1913, and was psyched for the change in venue. There was no longer the jabber of 11 official languages, no longer a variation in dress or custom. It was all German all the time here, and he was ready for it. That being said, he didn't quite fit into the scene in Munich. It's true that this was a time of German nationalism, but Munich was the capital of Bavaria, and being too stridently German carried with it suspicious Prussian undertones. The art scene, too, did not sync with Hitler, either. He was conservative in his manner and tastes, and while he had the lazy part of being a Bohemian down, he didn't have much else. Artistic tastes above the postcard level were going in different directions than Hitler's pictures of stately buildings. The postcard business itself wasn't all that great, either, mostly because Vienna simply wasn't as big a city as Vienna. Hitler also didn't do a whole lot of socializing in Munich, retreating into his accommodations for most of his time. He was polite with the family he rented from, but not much beyond that. He would go to cafes or beer halls to read the public newspapers and debate the events of the day with the other patrons, but that was more just his version of entertainment. Other than that, he retreated back into whatever world he was conjuring in his head in those days. There was one hiccup, though. In January 1914, as the Austrian authorities finally caught up with him. He had been due, before falling off the grid, to report to military service in the Austro-Hungarian Army, an obligation which he dodged like crazy, not wanting to get stuck suffering for an empire that he hated. Upon getting settled in Munich, though, the cops had a lead on him. He was taken down to the police station, where he made a series of excuses. first is that he was supposed to appear in early 1909, which was a bad time for him. He explained at length how destitute he had been the past four years, and he claimed to have reached out the next year, but that is almost definitely some BS he made up on the spot. Flimsy his explanations might have been, his appeals worked, and the Austrian authorities agreed not to press charges. He would only have to report for inspection to see if he was fit for service. Ironically, four years of living in a shelter might have helped him in this regard, because the Austrian processors took a look at him, and declared they'd rather not have someone in such bad shape in their army. He was shipped back to Munich and back to his obscure existence. At least for the next six months or so. While Hitler was painting postcards, Europe was falling to pieces. Franz Ferdinand was assassinated, and the whole thing boiled over on August 3rd, 1914, when Germany declared war on France. A huge crowd had gathered in Munich to greet the news with euphoria. Finally, the time had come to settle all the national scores that had built up, and for Hitler, he saw an opportunity to get involved with the world and become a part of something. He was finally going to act on his devotion to his idealized fatherland and his conception of the German race. Hitler was going off to his first war. He was quick in volunteering for service in the Bavarian army, and keep in mind that the Kingdom of Bavaria still existed within the German Empire, and its army was a part of the larger imperial army, But still distinct. You might be wondering if Hitler being a foreign national might have been an issue, and you'd be right. It should have been. Being a citizen of Austria Hungary, Germany's primary ally, uh, really should have meant that Hitler would be shuttled back home in order to be processed into that nation's army. Probably thanks to the sheer flood of volunteers, nobody bothered to check into this. He was simply assigned to a unit and ordered to appear at a mustering point. On August 16th, Private Hitler reported for duty and was eventually assigned to the 16th Reserve Regiment. This formation was mostly made up of untrained recruits, like Hitler, and spent most of the next two months going through a crash course of training. On October 20th, they were deemed battle-ready and shipped out to the Western Front. By this point, the Germans had been checked in the Battle of the Marne, and their advance on Paris had stalled completely. Losses had been very serious as well. The combination of machine guns and massed artillery was ripping both sides to shreds. Hitler's regiment didn't know this, however, and embarked on their trains with jubilant enthusiasm and patriotic songs. They were ready for their grand adventure. They wound up deploying to northwestern Belgium on October 29th, and engaged in the First Battle of Vipres, which, without getting bogged down into the details, was a very rough introduction to warfare. The Germans had run low on available fully-trained formations and started sending in the reservists in mass attacks to try and overwhelm the Entente defenders. It didn't go very well, and the Germans absorbed tens of thousands of casualties. Hitler's own regiment fell from a starting strength of 3,600 men to 600. The simple miracle of survival was rewarded soon after, and on November 3rd, he was promoted to corporal. In the eyes of the officers and social betters he would interact with down the road, that would be the highest status he would ever achieve. Not long after, on the 9th, he was assigned to become a dispatch runner, a role he would keep for the rest of the war. A dispatch runner was exactly what it sounds like. Whenever telephone communication was cut, which in the scene of trench warfare was quite often, runners would hand-deliver messages to frontline units. The risk-reward of the job fluctuated with the activity on the front. On one hand, he got to spend a lot of time behind the lines at his regiment's headquarters, which, as you might imagine, was a lot cushier compared to a rotation in the trenches. But then again, he would be delivering messages rain or shine, calm, or week-long artillery bombardment. The casualty rate among the runners was high compared even to the front-line soldiers. Hitler, though, kept to it enthusiastically even declining potential promotions that would have seen him reassigned elsewhere. The runner-job kept him beyond the lines for a solid chunk of the war, where he could sit around and work on his paintings. If that meant he faced a higher chance of dying terribly on the occasion he was sent out, well, then so be it. His indifference towards his own demise made him respected among the other soldiers, and he was awarded the Iron Cross Second Class on December 2nd. It was a high decoration for bravery, and you can believe Hitler would keep the award on his fridge for the rest of his life. He would upgrade it to first class near the end of the war in August 1918, although he snagged it more in a technicality that time. A commanding officer basically promised it to whomever got a message through, which Hitler did. It probably wasn't a genuine promise, meant more as like a pep talk thing, but Hitler begged enough that somebody got the okay to give it to him. Plus, by that point, he had survived in the Western Front for four years, which kind of deserves a medal in its own right. Hitler had found his niche in the army, and by and large, he enjoyed himself during this period. That sounds weird to say, but even at this point, he wasn't too attached to people, and he got used to violence pretty quick. He was well-liked among his comrades, although, like every time and place people got to know him, he was considered a big weirdo. Soldiers, since time immemorial, dreamed of chasing women and partying, and the Imperial German Army was no exception. The soldiers, though, could not fathom why Corporal Hitler didn't share their enthusiasm about any of those things, or really anything fun in general. He was a man apart from the rest, not antisocial, per se, but was walled off, and the other soldiers could tell. They thought of him as a monk of some kind, especially since he took his patriotism to a whole other level, even when compared to the most committed of soldiers. He was steadfast in the belief that Germany was guaranteed to win the war and after doing so, all the ills of the world would be set right, for Germans in any case. What that meant was that he expected to be elevated out of the lowly existence he had existed in for his entire adult life. Germany and the Germans were chosen because he was chosen. One of the sadder things that the other soldiers noted was the lack of correspondence. Hitler didn't get letters, and he didn't get care packages, even on holidays. On one Christmas at the front, while the other troops celebrated their mailed gifts, Hitler stewed by himself in his cot. For days. The other troops would offer parts of their own care packages out of sympathy, but he would brush them off and lay in bed mutely. For days. After the holidays passed, he stepped out of his funk and was back to the enthusiastic soldier. What went through his head during those moments, before his existence was dominated with the pursuit of power above Any other earthly concern and the mad destiny that awaited him, we'll never know. It was probably kind of sad. Anyway, Corporal Hitler was well-liked and regarded as reliable. He was willing to put himself in dangerous situations and would always help a comrade in distress. One man does not win a war. And that was something he was going to discover, much to his chagrin, on his trips back home. During 1916, his unit was transferred further south just in time for the Battle of the Somme. He was there from July to October, and, yet again, he didn't die. Out of all the Germans the Brits killed, they couldn't snag the one. On October 7th, though, he was finally wounded and taken first to a field hospital, and from there to a proper facility outside of Berlin. After a two-month convalescence, he was shipped to Munich, attached to a pool of replacement soldiers. The scene there did not impress him. This was the winter of 1916-17, to a.k.a. the turnip winter. Named because the food supplies ran short, and the only thing available were those turnips imported from Sweden. The citizens of the city were depressed and defeatist. The prospect of victory for them seemed distant, with all wishing for the war to end. The soldiers in the replacement pool weren't much better. None wanted to get shipped off to the front and risk their lives for a cause they no longer believed in. For Hitler, these attitudes among soldier and civilian alike were shattering, as he himself at this point totally identified with Germany's success. It was at this point that he probably started casting about for something to blame, or someone to blame. Up to this point, his antisemitism was, for lack of a better term, normal. In those days, he would belittle and condemn Jews for society's ills, but usually more as an abstract thing. Something simple to blame instead of complex, interacting forces in society. Now though, he started taking his formerly pedestrian racism much more seriously and pinning the very real misery at home on the Jewish race. Ironically, most Jews in Germany had supported the war, and figured that their participation in it would be their ticket into full social acceptance. Tragically, nice things don't happen when you're on the losing side of a war, and Germany was obviously starting to lose. Now, this sentiment wasn't confined to just Hitler. The popular culture in the whole nation started looking towards Jews as scapegoats but most didn't personalize it in the same way Hitler did. To him, he was finally making something of his life, but now the nebulous Jews were taking it away from him. By March 1st, though, he was happily back at the front. One of the few normal human pleasures Hitler indulged in was keeping pets, and for a time, he had a dog during his service. The pup had run into a German trench from the British side in 1915, and Hitler took him in. The dog was probably his best friend, and he named him Fuchel, and taught him all sorts of tricks. Upon returning from convalescence, he was reunited with an ecstatic Fuchel, and his comrades were happy to see him back, too. They even threw a little party in his honor. For someone as isolated as he, this was probably a moving scene for him. This was his home. Sometimes his home exploded, and people died. But here, he found his acceptance. In August 1917, though, he suffered two minor but kind of telling personal setbacks. At a railway station his unit was boarding at, his dog Fuchel was stolen. Hitler freaked out at the loss, more so than at any person who had died so far in the war. And later, his painting supplies were also stolen. He was not to replace them moving forward, which might indicate something died inside. The rest of 1917 was uneventful, but the conditions at the front started to get fearful. Food was getting to be in short supply, and the soldiers started eating cats and dogs at least when they could get their hands on them. You may remember in the early part of the Germany introduction that the first signs of collapse appeared back at the home front with the worker strikes towards the start of 1918. News of these strikes filtered back to the battlefront. Hitler in these days grew increasingly anxious. Good Germans wouldn't be striking at such a critical moment. It had to be the work of the Jews and the socialists. He brooded over the prospect that All the misery he and those around him had suffered through might all have been for nothing. By March 1918, his morale was temporarily boosted, though, with the capitulation of Russia. Word had already been coming down about a massive offensive in the West. Ludendorff's Great Spring Offensive. For the spring and summer of 1918, Hitler's unit would be in the thick of it. Hitler even having the occasion of taking four French prisoners single-handedly. The offensive stalled out, however, well short of Paris. As the summer started turning to fall, the Entente struck back, smashing the exhausted German lines. By October, the whole of the army was in retreat. By this point, most of the soldiers around him knew the war was lost and had no further will to throw their lives away. Hitler did not take the defeat well. He would rant and rave about the defeatists coming from the rear areas, about the betrayals emanating from the crumbling home front, the war wasn't even over, and he was already assigning blame. On October 14th, his unit was attacked with mustard gas, and Hitler himself was incapacitated. He was transferred to a hospital train and sent back to Germany. By the 21st, he had arrived at a hospital in Pazwalk, near the city of Stettin in the Baltic coast. You'll recall from the first Germany episodes that this is right around the time when the Empire started to disintegrate. Isolated. The recovering soldiers only heard rumors of the revolution brewing. They discussed mutinies and councils being established, but Hitler was stuck in hospital and knew nothing for sure. But finally, news broke on the 11th that Germany had signed an armistice. The fighting was over, and Germany had lost. Hitler probably knew this moment had been coming, but was crushed all the same. He wept into his pillow as everything he had identified with in the world was being swept away. He would later claim this was the moment he determined he would go into politics. Though he would also later claim that, while he was blinded from the gas, that he received a vision that he would rise to command the German people back to their former greatness. So, take all that with a whole load of salt, as that was a very specific prediction. Given the traumatic nature of the defeat, he probably just had a manic episode. One very real thing that changed, though, is that his hatred of those he felt responsible for the defeat Jews, socialists, defeatists, etc., was firmly cemented in his heart. From here on out, the hate became less a rhetorical device and more a pathological obsession. Next week, Hitler works to pull himself back together again, and eventually finds a place for himself in what was, for him, a cursed world in the form of a hopelessly small micro-political party. Join me then, and as always, thank you very much for listening.